0: You need to create an environment that's so good everyone wants to be part of it and no one wants to leave. What he did in English rugby is create that. When the police used to knock on the door, not my Lawrence. You must have the wrong address. That's okay. Of... <laughs> Was that a regular occurrence? Then? Well, occasionally, I caused a few heartaches and a few um, headaches for sure. If you can catch, you play rugby. And if you can't, I guess they stick me in a boat and you row. But right, okay. <laughs> you're not dealing with a rational human being, right? You are having a conversation with someone who's about to go into battle. He's got the best win record. Yeah, he's got the highest percentage I mean, of, of, of he, winning. I, I have
1: to say, picking up from a few things that you've said, I'm not entirely sure that you're one of his biggest admirers. No, 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 no. I like him. I like him a lot. This is up front with me, Simon Jordan. I believe there are a lot of vacuous, uninformed, unchallenged opinions out there. I want to get to the bottom line and cut through the nonsense. So with this podcast with William Hill, I'm going to get people with strong views who think they can stand them up to proper scrutiny. There's a good chance I might learn something along the way, and more importantly, so might you. Joining me in today's episode, a man who in his chosen sport reached the very pinnacle, in part inspired by tragedy. A captain on both the domestic and international fronts, a one-club man. He played three Lions tours, securing four Six Nations titles for England, and played an integral part in the historic 2003 Rugby World Cup triumph. Lawrence Delalio, welcome to Upfront. Yeah, welcome. Lovely to be nice here. Nice to Thank see you. Me. I was saying to you before we went on air, have I lost my mind? But I'm pretty sure that you and I sat on a flight flying back from Portugal at some ridiculous Football League uh, conference that I was bitching and whining about having to attend. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you were there as as a guest of some shape or form.
0: I was. I was there as a guest of uh, a friend of mine, Steve Hayes, who, who owned Wick and Wanderers at the time. I know Steve, yeah. And um, yeah. I, uh, I went to my seat, 1A, but you were sat in it. So I thought, well, I won't, I won't argue with him. I'll just let him sit there.
1: I'm pretty sure if you'd have asked me, mate, <laughs> I'd, I'd have moved. <laughs> um, one of the things that we do, Lawrence, in this podcast with guys like you is, for want of a better expression, find the why. Find yeah. the trigger that built you into being the person that you were. What were the driving forces? What made Lawrence DeLalio, from where he started to where you are now, what were the triggers for you, yeah, so- A, to get into rugby... Yeah, and and be to be the person that you are.
0: What you see out on the rugby field is 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 a human being that yeah. has to obviously get themselves into a into a position to go into battle. Um, but all your all your vulnerability, strengths, everything is exposed out on the field. Mm-hmm. And uh, going back to my childhood, uh, my parents owned a confectionery sweet shop, newsagents, you yep. call it. So in Stepney, um, okay. in the East End of London. East End of London. My mum worked incredibly hard. Uh, my dad then started to get. A job in a hotel, and my mum had an epiphany where she moved from Bethnal Green to Barnes in South West London. Okay, and I guess the two things I had throughout my childhood and throughout my life was unconditional love mm-hmm. from my parents, especially from my mum. Right, and when I say unconditional, I mean when the police used to knock on the door, you not my Lawrence, you must have the wrong address. That's okay. <laughs> was that a regular occurrence? Then? Well, occasionally. I wouldn't say okay. I, was, I wasn't. In, I wasn't in a lot of trouble, but I, I caused a few heartaches and a few um, headaches for sure. And also a belief system that, you, that anything and everything was possible. So who's, who's, who instilled f- that in you, your my mum. mum? Yeah, for East okay. End London, one of 10, right. You know, grew up in, in relative poverty during the war, but had real toughness, real yeah. resilience, and always a smile on her face. I mean, you know, I always watch that programme East Enders, it's no representation of the East End at all. It's nice, a miserable, miserable show, there. and my mum refused to watch it because no one's like that in yeah. East End, they smile all the time. But I think that set me up very well. My sister was a very talented ballet dancer, she got into the royal Ballet at the age of five and she got a scholarship into the royal Ballet. so okay i think what that allowed is my parents to think a bit differently my mum always wanted to get the best for me and for her and so i got taken out of state school and put into private school Now, whether that was a that was a conscious decision from my mum she wanted to give me the best right it, it exposed me to a whole world of different things my mum used to say you are what you're exposed to in life good and bad sure and i want to try and expose you to as many good things as possible productive your environment ultimately yeah and if you're going to choose a career i wouldn't have chosen rugby i mean it's it's not very nice it's quite right. ungl- it's quite unglamorous quite sort of you know it's pretty rough tough did you like any other sports yeah i was really interested in sport i was fanatical i mean the way it works is you you think you're good at football and I was half decent, to be fair. And then you play against someone who's really good and you realise, actually, I'm not yeah. that good. Yeah. Um, and if you can catch, you play rugby. And if you can't, I guess they stick you in a boat and you row. But... Right, okay.
1: <laughs> how, do you, how do you end up in a position? Because without being disrespectful, mm. it doesn't sound to me if your upbringing was particularly affluent. No. So how do you get into a situation where your parents are putting you into the private school system?
0: They just sacrifice. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've got children of my own now, three. And um, you always try and take... All the things you learnt in your own childhood, and, and hopefully get rid of the ones that weren't so pleasant, yeah. and and try and replace them, and, and, and then give them the best and, and, and make them humble yeah. and all that sort of thing. And and we had a a very loving, caring family. But you're right. Um, you know, it was if you look at rugby, I think it <clears throat> it's slightly losing its its um tag, but it's very white middle class elite sport. And all the boys go to posh private schools. Mm-hmm. And the irony is that I came from a background that was nothing to do with that, right. but I ended up going to quite a posh private school. Coming from the background I came from, I didn't quite initially. I wasn't the same as all the other kids that were there. Mm-hmm. I spoke very differently. It took me a while to settle in, but I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and, you know, we go back to the question why. Um, I mean, I played rugby, but I but I wasn't really, I mean, they had a very high standard there, so I wasn't necessarily in the first team. Yeah. Um, and then lost my sister very tragically yeah. in the Marchioness, with yeah. a boat disaster, sat around the table with her and my mum and my dad. She went off to a boat party, never came back. But I think you know that that led me down a, a different path because that was at sixteen. I was yeah. still at Ampleforth. It was in the summer of nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, and uh, you know, as you would expect, it completely blew my life apart. Yeah, devastation. Absolutely. And you know, and also the just the, the the not the the suddenness of it. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're one day gone, the gone next, the next yeah. And you know, clearly as a parent now, you can appreciate that the worst punishment you could ever inflict on anyone is watching them bury one of their own children. Absolutely. And it was just it, it blew our world apart, and I think for the next year, I went back to Anforth, but clearly things weren't right um you know I wasn't expelled, but it, for want of a better word, it was probably in my best interest and in theirs that I didn't carry on my education because you know, i was in I was it's in a mess yeah. um so I left there pretty soon after that um wandered around aimlessly, lost questioning the reason for being and and just grieving really so when i when I sort of eventually came out of my um my grieving process, I thought to myself, I-, I really need to sort my shit out. So I joined a rugby club, picked up the newspaper, WASS were there, it jumped out the page to me, and I joined that club. Right. And it's exactly that. It was very humble, looked like a working man's club. I'd come from a school, that had 27 rugby pitchers. Was had two that were in a state of disrepair. Um, and I walked in there, and from that moment onwards, I never looked back. And slowly but surely, I started to... Rebuild my own confidence, and my mum and dad, you know, who had no reason to smile, used to come and watch me play. You know, so rugby was a sort of therapy. Yeah, and my motivation was was never financial. Yeah, um, but it was it was more around purpose. Yeah, and um, I think that becomes quite powerful. Of because course, it does. It's, yeah. um, it, it becomes a key that. driver, and I think people see that in you, um, and that's why I try to articulate because it's it's quite a complicated sport, rugby, and it's you know tying itself in knots, making itself even more complicated, but. In many ways it's quite simple because it's about emotion, really. You know, mm-hmm. when, you, when you go to war, you know, if you don't do your job, Simon, you know, I don't get back on the helicopter and you've got to explain to my mum and dad why I'm not home. And yep, fair enough. R- no, rugby's not dramatic like that. No one loses their life, but you know, if you don't do your job we get, I get hurt no, right. and we lose yeah. and that's not acceptable.
1: I was gonna ask you, but it seems like a moot point about the the benefit of private education in developing your career. As a rugby player, mm. because, and the reason why I was going to ask you that is I want to link it into what Eddie Jones said, which was about privilege and adversity, because I do think that we live in a society where people aren't particularly resilient, they aren't particularly, uh, they don't have a great deal of fortitude, and yeah. so I, and there aren't many leaders about, no. and so I, the kind of, Whilst he was going off on a tangent and railing against certain parts of the establishment, yeah. I didn't think he was
0: too far fundamentally no, he's not, wrong. No, not equally. If you if you're trying to if you haven't got leaders, it, who's, whose responsibility is it to create them? I mean, it's your job. And can you, you? And if, you, if can you you create a leader? Yeah, well, I think you can by giving them some responsibility. Um, but does that create leadership? It can do. It but can even do. you
1: are aren't you a leader? You are even. Le- you can sophisticate your leadership. You can refine it and you can educate it. And but can you create a leader?
0: I think if you haven't got them, you need to, so you need to find a way of creating them and I think you can I, th- I think it is it is um you know sometimes you know if i feel with eddie he he's a he's a really good bloke right um and I know him quite well, and if you if he sat here we'd have a really interesting honest conversation but when he when he runs his teams um he's so controlling and so um he he just has this aura and personality where he has to be in charge of everything. And that's fine, but, you know, as, right. as far as I work out, mate, you're not the bloke getting your face smashed in at 3 o'clock. So, um, you know, that's we'll do that, but we're definitely not doing that. And I, I think what he needed in this England setup was someone who challenged him a bit more. Um, okay. I, I think to build a successful team, um, from my own experience, and not just on a sports field, but in life generally, you need trust and consistency. You need to trust a group of people, um, and you need to be consistent with the message that you tell them mm-hmm. over and over again, and you get better, and you get better, and you get better. Eddie Jones, when he took over England, he's he's had a successful CV, but there was a very um, familiar pattern to it. You know, he'd have instant success, and yeah, then, and then that. Now, if that happens, there's a reason why that happens because his style of management and coaching burns people, burns out. people out. You know, yeah. and and you just can't unless you're turning over your players all the time, which you can't do in rugby because it's not.
1: But isn't it a unique dynamic in? I mean, I, I, what I'm hearing is something that's rather unique to rugby then, because and. Correct me if I'm wrong in this analysis, but Martin Johnson referred to observations that he made about the, ignore Clive. Yeah, well, yes and, and no. I mean, we'll a certain... we'll yeah. sort it out amongst ourselves. And am I right in this? Again, it's a, it's an assumption on my part. You're correct because you were there. In the dressing room at half time in rugby, it tends to be the players that are more dominant in what 's being said rather than the coach. is that wrong all right that's wrong I think
0: what we have to recognize in, in our sport all I know is that you know it was an amateur game right I' am sat there you know I'm in a rugby club with builders, brokers, entrepreneurs, students, posh public school boys, the whole melting pot yeah. of different people. The game overnight goes professional right in nineteen ninety five a lot of my mates sat down with me and said i'm not as good as you i'm going to carry on being an architect." So we were the first generation of players who played six years of amateur rugby, Tuesday, Thursday night, to suddenly professional. I remember my coach saying to me the next day, Nigel Melville, played for England Scrum Half. He said, "Um, how many days do you reckon we should bring everyone in? I go, what do you mean? You're asking me how many days? I said, well, I think Saturday's quite important, so let's get them in on Saturday and let's work backwards from there. So what I'm saying is there was no precedent for how you coach a rugby team professionally. So what you're assuming is that what these coaches are telling you is right. I think a healthy and, and successful team has uh, It's coach-led, but it's player-driven. Okay. And I think there's conversations that happen during the week. And that's a uniqueness to rugby, though, isn't it? Well, I, I just think it's uniqueness to, to teams that are successful uh, consistently. The coach can't play the game. No, uh, but in other sports, you know, the fundamentals uh, yeah. of football are yeah. different. Coaches yeah, are, change I, the but dynamics but
1: of it. But I'm They're... obsessed.
0: I'm obsessed. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just... You know, I, I love football, but I just can't believe that success and failure is attributed to one person. It's just ridiculous. When you win together, you lose together. Granted. Now, you know, if if you win, the coach is obviously a big part of that because his tactics and how he how he oh, But there is the a up. fundamental difference. When you say, for example, in football,
1: when you look at Pep Guardiola and what he's doing, OK, yes, he gets the, one of the biggest checkbooks to be able to do it with, but still the unique perspective of the teams that he creates, the manner in which he creates them, there is no doubt yeah. who's running this side. If you don't do precisely what you, he wants you to do, you'll be gone. So it's
0: slightly more coach-influenced. But but I also think that he's unique. That's one way of doing it. But I, but don't think every person can replicate that. Well, then because, look, at, look at another because example. Because they haven't got the players and they haven't got, Granted, they haven't got his, his... But then uh... you
1: can look at Klopp as another example. Or you can look closer to home, and one that will probably pull the heartstrings that you have because you've been too two international teams that were, that were in your psyche, Italy and England in the European Championships. Yeah. The reasons why we didn't win the European Championships final, probably, is because Gareth Southgate sat with his thumb up his ass, whilst Mancini changed things yeah. because of that different factor of thinking that yeah. exudes in the mindset of someone that's committed to okay. changing things yes. and has a unique perspective and is a winner, in my view.
0: So, it's fascinating. So, Yokohama, which was England's last and probably greatest ever performance against new zealand yeah um no one really thought they'd win 34 seconds england score their first try new zealand don't score their first point until the 60th minute of the game and ultimately england went on and recorded a famous victory now even i with all my supposed rugby understanding and emotion etc was seduced into believing that england would actually win the next game right but if you actually analyze um you know, history, every team that beats New Zealand in the World Cup goes on to lose afterwards because it took so much so out of get them. that result. It took so yeah. much out of them. And I reckon, if you ask Eddie Jones honestly, I reckon they did exactly the same training week. So, to your point, you've got to be smart. You've got to change things. Mm. But if you don't know that and no one tells you that, then you're not going to do it. In 2003, we had that scare against Wales in the quarter final where we gave them a glimmer of hope that they might beat us. And then actually, we ran out quite comfortable winners in the end. After that game, we didn't do a single bit of training for the rest of the tournament. It was just about preparing ourselves. Right. And it would have been easy to just do the same things over and over again, because that's what sport at the highest level is, repetition, practice, scenario, planning. But actually, occasionally, you do need to change things. And it's the players and the coaches that do that in tandem.
1: Mm. I want to go back to the leadership thing with you, yeah. because uh, you know you were a leader. You were a, 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 a captain of your club. You're a captain of your country, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and and I remember speaking to Graham Souness about leadership and what it was and what it uh, what it represented to him and what he thought it was, because I think there's been a vast change over a period of time of what people think leadership is. Yeah. What did you think leadership was?
0: I think um, leadership to me is about persuading people and taking people to places they wouldn't ordinarily get to themselves.
1: Yeah, I think that's right.
0: And um, you need to be able to dial people up and dial people down and just, you know, have that chemistry. And successful teams, it's not about one individual. It's about the alchemy that exists between the coaching group, the playing group, and and it's about having honest conversations. You know, leading is about being honest, you know. I think so i think i'm comfortably honest conversations as well but but when i say being that that's, that's not on social media yeah. that's not on um you know in the papers it's about no. behind face closed face. doors face to face. face to face would you like to explain what you're doing on saturday because it doesn't appear like you're doing your job yeah. if you want to watch the game you know pay 30 quid like everyone else you know it's it's just simple honest conversations with people the thing you can't measure and if you could you'd be a very wealthy person is what's going on in people's heads and what's going on in their heart and i'm very big on this because my drivers as we discussed for rugby weren't about my love of the game they're about the head and the heart mm-hmm. and i think if you especially men because they're quite vulnerable really and they don't like to talk about it but when you're in a in a changing room with a group of guys 10 minutes before kickoff they're all international rugby players they're all great players Yep. i'm, I'm not gonna tell them how to play any better i mean most of them are far better than i am at playing rugby but what you can do is find the right emotional touch points within each of them and sometimes that it requires your own vulnerability to be laid out there open. Um, and you can connect the tissue between the head and the heart. And if you can do that, what you get is you get players who might deliver six out of 10 to give you nine or 10 out of 10. Yeah. And the more leaders you can have in your team, go back to Eddie Jones's rant about not having any um, is, you know, strength to you both for sure.
1: I want to go back to you getting the England captaincy in 97 and
0: obviously Clive Woodward, why do you think he gave it to you? Clive is a really interesting um, man, <clears throat> and there's absolutely no doubt that we would not have won the World Cup without him. Right. Absolutely no doubt. I mean, he changed and revolutionised rugby beyond all belief. Clive was a one of those rare people who played at the highest level. He played for Leicester, uh, England, British Lions. And... He then went and worked in, 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 um, in business. He worked for Xerox. He worked in technology. And then he came back to coaching and he became the England coach after a short stint at Bath, whatever. You know, the first, he, he did some incredible things, which when you reflect back now, first, he's, he's what I call a disruptor, all right? Right. If England and Wales and Scotland, Ireland and France were obsessed with winning the five nations, okay? And he said, well, that's great. And, and to be applauded, and Will Carling and Jeff Cook did an amazing job with England. But actually, if you want to win a World Cup, We've actually got to be obsessed with beating the best people in the world right and which sounds pretty obvious to yeah be and yeah. and but if you if you get into your little petty battles uh, you know against the celts um then right. that, that's not going to work because you've got to be obsessed with new zealand and south africa particularly that's how you, in win, in Australia, that's how you yeah. win you know the first thing he did when he arrived um in the job was he said new zealand the best team in the world where do they stay when they come to the uk they said, well, he said well, they stay in this place called the Pennyhill Park, he said, "Not anymore. They don't. Let's kick them out." So it was quite mischievous as well. So yeah, yeah. kick them out. And now, listen. We were. It took us six years to to get to the top of the world, but it was a little message just to say mm. we're coming after you. And I think what England were were famous for was was producing great victories, but when they played against the best, they weren't able to deliver it. And Clive realised that. We need to become pioneers we need to become innovators in the game yeah. he <clears throat> went over to america and found you know that they were doing they had a defense coach uh, mm. uh, and, all, and brought all these specialisms to the sport which and then the kiwis started to follow what we were doing you know jason robinson did we win the world cup because of jason robinson well he persuaded his cfo that 1.5 million pounds to buy jason robinson was a really good idea now it turned out to be an outstanding idea mm. Because he was one of the most talented rugby players but ever. At the time it was but a revolution. it was a huge risk. Yeah. Never played rugby union. So there's a number of things that you trace back. And he made me captain probably because he felt that <clears throat> I was someone who he could talk to a bit more. I never knew Clive. I knew he was a player. Went to meet him and we had a chat.
1: Before I cover Clive Woodward in 2003, uh, it would be remiss of me not to ask you about what the situation you got yourself into in 1999. Yeah. You're the captain of the country. You're captain of a domestic team and you put yourself in a way of something yeah. that put you in a situation where you had to resign or have yeah, the captaincy yeah. taken away from you. What was that about?
0: Um, was, I mean, listen, I don't have many regrets um, in life, but, um, yeah, the, that getting myself involved in that situation was, was uh, definitely one of them. Um, I... Uh, had a bad week, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> Sounds like uh, it, mate. I, I, we lost, to, if you remember, we lost to Wales, okay, at Wembley. Now, I always dreamed of playing at Wembley. As I'm sure you did. I'm sure everyone in this room did, right? I never thought it'd be rug- I have. I, ne- I never thought it'd be rugby. Of course you have. I never thought it'd be rugby. But to Captain England at Wembley yep. against the Welsh, and it was their home game, uh, and we were playing for the Grand Slam, and um, I made a couple of pretty poor captaincy decisions uh, and ultimately cost us a game. And... Um, I walked off that field and, I mean, I accept full responsibility for that defeat. I made some poor decisions and we should have won the game. I've never been as broken as I was when I came off the field. I did that long Wembley walk. I was gobbed on by a Welsh supporter, you know, and it's moments like that that you realise why Eric Cantona did what he did. Um, I sort of wiped the spit out of my eye. I mean, how I retained my... You know, my self control and and whatever. But anyway, got into the changing room and they were, you know, everyone was in tears. I've no, the, the whole place reeked of death. Then the following week, I think it was that the following week or that week, I was on the on the back page of the, the front page of the news as well. That's my point. I got myself involved in a situation where you know I, I was talking to journalists I didn't even know. You know, entrapment. We all know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's fake news. You make it up. You get someone to, to 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 talk about things, boast about things. I shouldn't have even been in that situation. I um, always, you know, it's the, it's the sportsman in you, the first thing you do when you recover is you look in the mirror and go, you know, uh, who's to blame here? Uh, and 100% I, I was to blame for that. And you know what really upset me is not what happened with the news of the world, it's actually that I upset people that I really cared about, like my yeah. mum, like my family. I put people in a situation that they should, they didn't, and that that's what really upset me.
1: I mean, I've got to ask you because you're you're a smart cookie. How well, have you got yourself in a conversation with well, the, journalists agent, yeah, the about drugs? at the
0: time put me in I mean you know they they were very um, clever in the way that they you know formulated this this sort of endorsement deal etc the agent put me in the room with them but the fact is that I was left there on my own and that right. was the stupidity of it all as i said i <clears throat> i'm not blameless in it at all i mean i'm you know I, how how I, that happened I, I i only know but it, it happened uh, but they created the story really and, right. and ultimately to sell newspapers. And the fact that I'm here talking to you however many years later and the news of the world is no longer, um, I think tells you everything you need to know about the way that they go about their business. Oh, I know the way that yeah. they're talking about. And, and, no, yeah. and then, you know, the following week, you've got the mail on Sunday, you know, uh, with front you know, page headlines when every other paper runs stories about British troops in Kosovo. Um, but that's not the point. I shouldn't have put myself in that situation.
1: Let's take you back to a pivotal moment, which is... The 2003 World Cup, because I have mixed emotions about Clive Woodward, and I'm interested to see what your take on him is. And my maybe my emotions are driven by the fact he came bowling into football with opinions that were steeped in very
0: little substance. Yeah, I mean, foreign coaches came bowling into football, and you know, we 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 sort of, you know, worship the ground they walk on. I think, you know, he's a disruptor and football only ever gave jobs to people in football, you know, and, you know, some, some, and, some, and, some. And granted, and I'm some, not, some, I'm, some well, some I'm didn't work so well. I'm not one for conventional wisdom. Yeah.
1: I'm not one for the orthodoxy not yeah. being challenged. Yeah. That's not no, no, I understand, I
0: understand where you're coming you know, from. But I all think.
1: I see Clive do, seemingly, mm. and, you might, and, you'll, and you might well turn around and say that's because he's got justification for it, is seeming to be re- remarkably critical. But yeah. go back to 2003, going into that World Cup, and being part of that team, was there inherent belief that this was a World Cup that was yours
0: to win? Yeah, so Clive Woodward, 97, 99, we we all played in the World Cup. Well, quite a lot of us did. Um, We got beaten uh, by New Zealand in the pool game. So Clive was two years into his tenure. We were a lot less experienced. We got beaten in the quarterfinals by South Africa, five Yanni De Beer drop goals. Um, We were bombed out of it. And It was, you know, it it was very, very depressing. Um, I guess... In the aftermath of that, Clive was given a vote of confidence by, the, uh, by Fran Cotton and the RFU, yeah. and he was given the job. And that really, out of the ashes of that devastation, um, and Johnny Wilkinson was part of it, Mike Johnson, and a lot of the people that ended up being in 2003. So we'd been through that experience. Now, I know you talk and sit here with lots of people involved in sport, and you know they say well, you, have to, you have to go through failure to get success. There's not all, too much. Not, yeah. all, not yeah. too much failure. Yeah. I mean, no one likes to lose, right? So, but there's no doubt that that experience made us realize that we were nowhere near where we need to be to to beat the best in the world yeah the journey for the 2003 really started from about 2000 where we had this recognition that if we want to beat the best size in the world we've just got to get fitter faster stronger we've got to dedicate our whole lives to it we won pretty much 14 games on the spin home and away against new zealand south africa australia i mean that is that is the record i'm more proud of than anything in the world it, interspersed in that was a defeat, was a defeat to Scotland in two thousand, right. and you know everyone was doubting whatever. But and if you you know when you read out whatever whatever trophies you you win, i won Grand Slam, probably should have been about three or four really, but that's by the by. Would you swap those for one World Cup? You know I don't know. You'd rather have them all, but mm. we learned some very painful lessons. But by the time we arrived in in um, in Australia, we were in exactly the same position as Ireland find themselves in right now. We were the number one, ranked number one side in the world. Right. We'd beaten the Southern Hemisphere consecutively, yeah. home and away. And we'd already gone that summer of the World Cup down to Australia and New Zealand and beaten New Zealand and Australia in Australia. I think everyone realised that actually, you know, we've still got to go out to Australia and win, but we are, we've are we put ourselves in a great position. Uh, there was a belief. And when I phoned my mum and dad and said, uh, are you guys going to come out to Australia? And they said, oh, yeah, we're going to talk to you about that. We, You know, money's a bit tight. I said, look, I can't say this publicly but i think we're going to win this tournament you know i really believe we are i said uh, you've got to be there because i said the only this week... was at the beginning of the tournament yeah this was well this was this was about a month before i said you have right. to be there and you have to be there for nine weeks because i think we're going to be there for nine weeks yeah and i said i'll pay for it i said because you've given me everything i've ever had in my life and i want you and to I be, want here you to be there year. to celebrate it. and obviously it all finished with a lovely fairy tale ending
1: what kind of captain was um, martin johnson because it strikes me is that that Clive lucked out there yeah. because he had you as his captain. That situation w- that we've just discussed. Yeah. Martin Johnson goes in as captain. Yeah. And I remember instances against Ireland. Where you have this psyche of the England team, they they go out and they line up in the wrong place. They refuse to move, and I think that's fucking great. Yeah. Right, that sort of well, I mean, no one
0: told us what what, the, what was going on before the game, and what people. But you to, still decided to, yeah, not yeah, to whatever, move. But what people have to realise, I, I mean, you talk to boxers, you are dealing. No, you're not dealing with a rational human being, right? You are having a conversation with someone who's about to go into battle and about to get hurt and about to hurt people. So therefore, you're not dealing with the, with a rational. So when we when people talk to you five minutes before kickoff. I mean, what place do they think you're in, mm. you know? So, it, it's, you know, there is a bit of forgiveness there because, you know, it wasn't us just being stubborn. No one had told us, but... but I think it's great. I mean, it was, well, what was really Didn't they great, exhibit the psyche what, of a team? Yeah. Well, what was yeah. really great is that the, um, you know, the Jobsworth who came out to, you know, move us, he said to the referee desperately, Jonathan Kaplan, Little South Africa, he said, Mr. Kaplan, please, would you mind asking the English team to move to the other side of the pitch? Because they're currently on Ireland's lucky side of the pitch. I mean, it's beautiful, isn't it? And the referee, who's not known for his sense, he said, listen, mate, there's no chance of these blokes listening to me when the game starts, let alone before <laughs> it starts, <laughs> which I was quite good. But look, it, the game was won in that instance, really. Yeah. They were going for the grand slam as well, don't yeah. forget. And um, I think it was 9-3 at time and we ended up winning quite comfortably. So, yeah, Martin Johnson was um, and is, well, was an amazing rugby player. Forget the captaincy for one, for one second. He was probably one of the best players in the world, in his position. And people forget that because they always because you're captain, they always think about the captaincy. Yeah. And the other thing that he was very good at was being able to treat every game as the same in terms of it, you know, so for those people who get a little bit nervous and overexcited, he could bring them down. For those people who weren't there, he could bring them up. Bring them up. Yeah. I I wasn't quite like that. I think that emotion sometimes sometimes you need to be a little bit more emotional for certain games than you do for others. Or different structures, but also he was also very good at, at recognizing that you know the majority of time he's he's got his head buried you know in, in the second row yeah and therefore there are people in certain positions in the team the back row um scrum half fly half who who have to make decisions you know um i think what he tried to do and what he did very successfully is try to simplify the game because it's so complicated and everyone gets you know bamboozled with stats and numbers and all this and it's just you know it, it's this and it's, it's this and this yeah. and that's it and, and and people like that so we're very lucky, and as you said, we had a number of other leaders in the group. Um, and I think that ultimately, we when we went out for that Rugby World Cup final, um, it's a, it a tough day. I was thinking about it with the Lionesses the other day, because unfortunately it ended up being um, uh, in disappointment. But I had a worry that they played the hosts already in the semi-final. Yeah. And they, they almost did what England did in South Africa, in uh, in Japan, where they'd beaten New Zealand. right, And that almost took that so much Everest, out of them. Yeah. That was their evidence, And I think yeah. to try and build yourself up again, Whereas we went into the final, we weren't playing the All Blacks because we'd watched Australia beat them the day before. Um, and i got to say I was quite pleased with that because we had the dream final. We had the hosts Absolutely. in their own backyard in the final. Now, and they're play, always so magnanimous we, we, Australians, we, oh, All the way through the tournament. Yeah. Dad's army, You know, is yeah. that all you've got? Yeah. We've just beaten South Africa by th- 25 points. Is that all you've got? Um, but we... And they actually advertised where we were staying. Go and make as much noise as you can t- tonight before, you know, so that we wake up, you know. It was just incredible. It was laughable, really. David but Campesas we of the world. We'd beaten Australia six, six times previously. So we knew we were a better side than them. They knew we were a better side than them. But you've still got to go out there and prove mm-hmm. it. And we had all day. And it was a roasting hot day in in uh, you know in Sydney and Manly Beach, and you just want to go outside and just chill out and get your head straight, but you know you've got fans you know outside or whatever, so you were like goldfish, you know. And we eventually got ourselves to Homebush Park, and yeah, I mean look, we should have won that game by a lot more. There's, there's this amazing psyche. I mean, England are the only country in the world to have won a World Cup at football, rugby, and cricket, probably because there's not that many sides that play that sport, but every single one of them has gone to extra time. Um so we we obviously love a drama. Don't we? There's right. there's some I don't know there's something about it really. Um and England probably should have won a lot more than they have done not just in rugby in, in lots of different things. You think? Yeah, definitely. But closing the deal out is not yeah. easy to do at all. It's an
1: interesting statistic. I'd never thought along those lines. I, <laughs> I like... mean
0: 1966, of course, 2003 yeah. and 2019. In the, and in now cricket. actually sorry yeah. we won the 220 didn't we as well but yeah. but but you know the and it's it, it yeah it's 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 definitely i mean and, and actually that played a bit of a part for us because you know um ben cohen's uncle george, george was, yeah. you know he came into the came in to speak to us before the before in the week leading up to the final you know and it and it, and it not that we needed to connect the two together no but but it, but it, but it did and yeah, it didn't yeah. hurt at all um but uh yeah we we did make life difficult for ourselves i mean we should have been outside by half time uh the game should have been done and dusted give credit to Australia of the six times that we played them before they'd never played that well mm. and they actually played very well probably the best they played well they they, they probably had to to some yeah, extent they're exactly. playing in front of their home and fans aren't they? home advantage is a big factor I mean France are one of the favourites for the tournament there's yep. been I think there's nine World Cups three of those nine so far have been won by the home team so it is possible but pressure can sometimes work against you you know New Zealand won it when Dan Carter got injured and they ended up phoning up their fourth choice fly half who was fishing down on the Waikato and said mate hey, you're in <laughs> <laughs> and they just got over the line, but it was nip and tuck when they were so much better the side. So it's it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. Much harder away from home. And actually what I hadn't really appreciated, I mean, when I walked out for that final with everyone else, I mean there was white shirts everywhere. I mean it was it was like you were at home though, really, because fans believed in us.
1: When you look back on on Clive Woodward and and you've spoken about him and the fact that he was a disruptor <laughs> mm. and I suspect an innovator. Um, yeah, he was, yeah. And an overcomer because he's th- he's thought his way through problems. But you win a World Cup and very shortly Clive disappears off the scene, lands in my space in football two years later. But what's your overall assessment of Clive Woodward and his influence? So I'd say specifically over you and your career.
0: Players very rarely criticise their coach publicly. Um, because they're the person that, 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 especially when they're still coaching. <laughs> yeah. Because, control their distance. Yeah. Although, although coaches aren't afraid to go out and have a press conference and uh, and, and and have a quite an interest. You know, I've had many many conversations with coaches that I've, you know, worked with, who've just come out of the press conference and said, oh, you enjoy yourself in there?" do you? I said, "We have got to go and pick up the pieces now." Well done. You really you really messed that one up. Not often, but occasionally, and Clive, Warren Gatlin, they've all you know, we've all had those conversations, going, Yeah, well done. Now you've made you've just made our assignment even harder now. Um, so Clive's impact on English rugby was was immeasurable. Immeasurable, game changing, game changing. Um, you know, because he you talk about leadership, he, he changed the vision. You know, we'd conquered half the world, but we were never going to conquer the rest of the world operating the way we operated. The first thing he did came in, you know, gave everyone a laptop. Which the front row obviously took quite a while to even open and be able to turn on, really. But <laughs> and and he turned around, and he said, "The team with the best IT is the team that's going to win." And because he came from an IT background, right? And everyone's going, "What are you on about, mate?" Yeah. The team with the best scrum and the best fly off win, you know. That, that. But actually, you know, he started to give everyone laptops, and then we would be sent our our, our, our club performances like literally on the final whistle and then you you know you'd have to, and, and then he'd phone you up a little bit later on and go, let's talk us through that. So and actually when you look at five years later when you looked up at the coaching boxes of any international team, there's a suite of laptops all up there. So he definitely was ahead of his time. You know, he he did things that were very, very different and interesting. You know, Jason Robinson said to Nike, I need you to design us a rubbish shirt that's gonna win us the World Cup. And they went, Well we've just given you, you know, ninety eight million pounds or whatever. he said No 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 i said look at these and he went away and he said i got this guy jason robinson he runs quicker sideways than most people do forwards but you know people keep grabbing his shirt so he literally is that what he said yeah he lit they literally designed us a shirt to win the world cup you know he, he his attention you know what does he call it critical non-essentials do 100 things one percent better now when you bring in a group of coaches ultimately clive was in charge um, but you still gotta manage those coaches. Yeah. You know, because they've all got egos. They want the training sessions. If the training session is an hour and a half, they they want an hour of it and you can't you know, can't give every coach an hour. So I think he created the environment. He wanted English rugby, when when you uh, and I think Gareth Southgate has is sort of achieved this now, is that when you play for your country, everything should be a step up. You know, you can't be at a club where things are better. You know, the Roy Keane argument was, you know, I'm at Man United, I go and train with Ireland, it's a joke. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that it needs to be aspirational and inspirational and you need to create an environment that's so good, everyone wants to be part of it and no one wants to leave. And what he did in English rugby is create that. He right. created a situation where I'd finish a game at my club, I couldn't wait to get in the car and drive down to wherever we were and walk in that, that room and, and be part of that group. Um, unfortunately in life, um, you know, there are moments when you get to the end of the World Cup um, and I knew when I was in that change room in Sydney, that enjoy the the, the best time I had, and, and I've spoken to all my colleagues about this, was that hour that we had together after John Howard had thrown the medals on us because they had to get off air quite quickly. And we're in there and we'd finally achieved our objective of winning the World Cup. And there was just this enormous sense of relief, as you'd expect, but just an excitement because you know there was all the management, all the players who hadn't played, but who'd really sacrificed a lot. And all of us and we were all together there was t- you know there was every emotion people in tears there were people laughing there was everything going on but i knew that as soon as we walked out that door that team would never be the same again and johnny wilkinson didn't play rugby for england for another three and a half years after that night martin johnson retired almost immediately most some of the other players were so emotionally mentally and physically worn out because uh, but we're right in the middle of the rugby season. The rugby season just started, and mm. the World Cup. So I had a phone call from Warren Gatland, and everyone's case is different. I'm not saying mine was right or wrong. And he said, you know, well done, really proud of you. You know, couldn't be proud of you. Uh, you can have next week off, um, and you'll be in Newcastle parading the trophy with Johnny Wilkinson. But you know, you, you need to play in the in the European Cup game the following week. I was going great. Or wasps, yeah, yeah, great. I was delighted because I was still fit, and I was still I'd lo- I still had loads of batteries left, and I. Uh, went on to win the European Cup and the Premiership that year, so was, I think it's called a Royal flush in most in most sports. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just an a yeah. fantastic. Every time you lace your boots, you want to you want to win. Um, but then I got to the Six Nations, and Clive gave me the captaincy of England back, which I don't know. You know, I I wasn't craving it in any way, but it was nice to to round the circle yeah. a little bit and just yeah. you know the ultimate redemption, yeah, I nice suspect. And but unfortunately, he gave it back to me. <laughs> but I looked round and that was half a it's team the same, gone yeah. you know yeah. there's literally and um, we lost to Ireland in the six nations um Brian driscoll's Ireland and then we went down to New Zealand and Australia and we got humped by 50 points in three test matches and look Clive you know understandably um had sacrificed his life as well to to the cause and and he was starting to get some interesting phone calls i was with him when Rupert Lowe phoned him up and we were at the Pennyhill Park and we were did, just before we were going on tour and i went oh.
1: Get a job in football. Right? That's a strange little conversation <laughs> between Rupert oh, so and, you, and Clive. So you get
0: a conversation in football, are you? And he was obviously denying it. But I think his, you know, his head was definitely in a different place, mm. and he decided to pursue that. But th- the RFU, uh, th- there is some accountability that needs to happen, really, at the RFU, because I don't think, and look, I'm not blaming individual people, but not building on that legacy was poor. Well, that's my. point. I, d- I don't think England have ever quite got that right. Right. Because the, the, the subsequent appointments of England coaches would, would, would be testament to the fact that they, they, they didn't make the right appointments. Well, that would be
1: my next point, because it would appear before we get out into England of today. I mean, all roads lead to that particular point, because post a Rugby World Cup that we've won in 2003, you would think that would be the launch <laughs> sequence yeah. for continued success. But it isn't. Yeah. It's the polo. okay, we get to the 2007 yeah. final, yeah. so that's not bad for the defending champions. Yeah, but other than that, we don't, win, we don't win a Grand Slam for 12 years. Yeah, there's no right to do it. We don't even win the championship. But that, we do not win the, the championship, point. Is it, is normally, you yeah. would expect when you've, when, yeah. you've, when, you've, when you've given yourself an opportunity yeah. to build upon something, yeah. you'd build upon it. So that leads me into where we are now. I mean, this period of time where there's been a lack of success... Okay, Eddie got us to a final in 2019, yeah. um, and as you say, there's no God-given right to win anything. But you'd like to think that you'd start to win things but, uh, yeah. more regularly. Yeah. Um, what's your? I mean, what? I mean, what's your assessment of the journey that we've been on since the World Cup, Eddie Jones's tenure, and where we are now? Um, because he's got the be- he's got the best win record.
0: Yeah, he's got the highest percentage I mean, of wit, of, wit, of winning. I, I have
1: to say, picking up from a few things that you've said, I'm not entirely sure that you're one of his biggest admirers. of I read No, 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 wrong? no,
0: no. I like him. I like him a lot. I like him as a bloke. Uh, he's you know he's loose, um, and that's not why I like him. But he's loose no, in terms no, of what he says. You yeah, know, he says things, and you yeah. think oh, that's a bit, a bit you know he can't say that. No. He's done it in press conferences, isn't it? Um, and you know he used to throw grenades. It was much more fun when him and Clive had press conferences. I'd say what I mean. No, no wonder the whole press would be there because you knew it'd be lively. And uh, they'd just be throwing grenades at each other. Um, but I think he got the job because England were at their lowest there. Yeah. England had given the job to three coaches who have turned out to be amazing coaches. They're all in Ireland, or yeah. one has now moved to France. Stuart Lancaster, the other Andy Farrell, and and, uh, and Mike Cat are now very successfully coaching Ireland because they've made, already made all their mistakes, mistakes with England. England yeah. Now England have got this habit of, of employing people. Um, For the benefit of someone yeah, else. Well, just to say, guys, um, I know you haven't got much coaching experience, but have a go at coaching. Have a go at the best job in the world. Uh, and um, you know, if it doesn't work out, don't worry, because we'll just find something. I Martin Johnson, amazing rugby player, was offered the job to coach England, but never coached a team before. Now, I've got nothing but admiration for him as a human being, as a bloke, but if you've not coached before, you can't just put him in there and expect things to work. You need to surround him with people that mm. might help you. Now, the Kiwis got it right because they had, you know, Steve Hanson, Graham Henry, they sent them over to Wales to uh, to make their mistakes and coach. And then, you know, and then they came back to coach Blacks. And instead of just appointing one of them, they appointed all three. They got Steve Hanson. But is
1: that just not... I mean, do you think, do you think that's constructive or constructive well, What is a quirk of fate? No, what I'm
0: saying is that, you you, you know, to be a, a a great coach, you know, it's it's it, you're going to make mistakes along the way. And, yep. and you know, it's, it's... For England to have given... I mean, there's a reason why. One, that everything that we built was dismantled. I think there was a not-invented-here syndrome. I don't know whether it was jealousy, Clive Woodward. Clive Woodward automatically probably should have just gone straight into the top job of director of rugby and been in charge of of maybe the structure that was required to um, you know to, to, to keep England going in, as a superpower in, in the game. But that didn't happen, and I don't know why, whether it was jealousy, et cetera. And England went from being the number one side in the world to, to there. And every single appointment... Uh, it's felt has not necessarily been um, conducted in the right way, and what makes matters worse is that the appointment there's there's no ownership of the appointment. Uh, you know we've got an independent uh, anonymous panel who are going to do the review of the England team, and then they're going to appoint the next England coach. I mean, if you appoint someone, you, you need to who, who made that appointment? Who's responsible for that? Did it go right or wrong? And there should be some things. Yeah. So <laughs> Andy Robinson, Brian Ashton, Martin Johnson, Stuart Lancaster. I don't think. All great individuals, all great coaches, but should they have been given that job at the right time? I don't know. I just think that when Eddie Jones was appointed, you know, it was uh, it was obviously, he was coaching in South Africa. Eddie is, had an amazing record because he took England there. I mean, timing and everything in, in jobs is quite important as well. Yeah, when Warren Gatman arrived it's. at Was, we were in a mess, you know, and he looked at it and thought, If I can't have an impact there, then it's something you know. Looked at the squad, looked at the players, and thought there's there's a reason why these guys aren't playing well. So timing is everything. We won three titles in three years there. So I think when Eddie Jones took the job with England, you know, one he got a pay rise, and two he's he's probably thinking, um, you know, there there, is much more. uh, The total is much more than the sum of their parts at the moment, you know. And his impact was instant, actually. And therefore, when you say you don't like him, I do like him, and he is a very good coach. You know what he's achieved, but if you look at his his record around the world, there is success. It's you know, but then there is there this there's this it's Mourinho esque. There, it? there is problem, and I yeah. interviewed him right at the beginning of his England tenure when when the first two years went really really well. I was working for BT Sport, and I said to him, you know, and he's a I know him quite well. He's a yeah. guy. that said, look, you know, we beat you. You were one drop goal away from winning the World Cup, you know, and you didn't win it. I said. Um, you stayed with Australia for six years. I said, um, you had instant success. You, you, you restored their reputation by winning the Bledisloe Cup against New Zealand, something they hadn't done, and you took them all the way to a World Cup final. And apart from Johnny, you'd have won it. You stayed on for another two years and it all went horribly wrong. You know What, what would you do differently? He said, oh, mate, mate, I stayed too long. I won't make that same mistake again. So he did four years with England. The first three years were unbelievable. And then we get ourselves to a World Cup final. It goes horribly wrong. Um, in the World Cup final, and they do a review and they reappoint him, and the next two years you could tell well, was you know it's, a, it's almost like history's repeating itself. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think that uh, well, I guess
1: he is what he is, isn't he? I mean, yeah, but if, it, somebody, yeah. if you,
0: so so he said I'll never do that again. So you know losing the World Cup final, he, he could have stepped away and said right that's two I've lost now on on you know one with Australia, one with England, um, but England offered him a new deal and and you know he he, he, he took it uh, and. I don't think and this is where Clive and I will most definitely agree. I'm not sure that there was a proper review conducted after the after that after that world cup um because if there was then that that wouldn't have happened and going back to my point around trust and consistency <coughs> in his six year tenure he had twenty three assistant coaches so twenty three people that are giving messages to the players mm. that is why they are so confused at the moment because Every time they just learn something about something, the message changes again because coaches can't stay with him because yeah. You know, no, but hang on, there, there is a huge burnout but rate. Hang on, you. <coughs> you,
1: you told me at the beginning of this conversation to, you know, that most of the time the players decide what's no, going no, on. No, 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 they
0: don't. No, I was talking about our generation of players. We didn't decide. We we're very respectful of our coaches, but if we disagreed with what our coach was asking us to do, you put your hand up and say, right. Said it's, it's, not, it's not. You know, guys, we're all in this together. You know, if we win, your reputation will go up. And if we win as players, so will ours. But, uh, you know, we're not. you can't be at odds with what they're asking you to do. I think you should run and score a try against those three meatheads there in the line. Well, no, I don't want to do that. Why don't I run up the space over there? That looks like a far better idea. You know, it, just because they're the coach doesn't mean that they're right. And just because you're the player doesn't mean you're always right either. Mm. You, know, we, you know, but you need to have the ability to challenge in both directions. Coaches challenge you as players to become better players and to improve. And you... As players should be challenging the coach to be a better coach as well. Borthwick being brought in,
1: um, one of his strengths being to add clarity, apparently. Yeah.
0: Um, well, they are confused. I mean, they well, are. Yeah. yeah, blimey. <clears throat> but equally, Steve, like Eddie Jones's most successful two years of England of, of coaching England was when Steve Borthwick was the forwards coach. Right. So I can under and then as soon as he walked away, it, it, it was quite the same. It wasn't quite the same. So Steve is. A disciple of the game. He's a student of the game. He was not expecting the job. Now he was expecting the job after the World Cup. So he's been parachuted in. And I think what he what he left to go and enhance his coaching credentials and his understanding of the game. The two years after Eddie Jones, I think what he came back to. I think he was quite surprised and shocked by what he came back to. Right. Because he came back to a squad that where the standards were had fallen for whatever reason. They'd fallen below where they were when he left he has come into a bit of a mess really and in that time it's not just on the field three clubs have gone to the wall you know there's been a lot of problems going on in english rugby at the same time he again is um you know you've got to pick up the pieces in a year before the world cup i mean it's, it's not really the, the plan in anyone's uh you know view or book is to, to appoint a coach for the world cup and then sack him a year before the world cup i mean south africa managed to do it um, and erasmus came in two years before but I would argue that that was probably two years was enough, given the talent pool that they had to turn things around. And actually, they created a game of rugby that was slightly, um, you know, playing to their strengths. I mean, it wasn't wasn't the easiest on the eye. I mean, they lost they lost the first game comfortably to the All Blacks, right? And Everyone forgets that comfortably. Then they went away and they and they sort of rested and recuperated and let everyone else have a go at it. And then they were in prime condition. And they they are a, a, an incredible side. So Steve's come in. I think there's a lot to fix there, you know, and he's, he ain't going to be able to do it overnight.
1: Is this knowledge that you've gained as a result of Steve Borthwick's
0: experiences, or did you know that this was likely to be? No, an no, no. Steve no this this has been into. a steady. This has been since 2003, right? England have got no defined right to win anything, right? Um, and none of us ever believed that. But you know, consistency of performance is. It, there are certain levels that you you you've, you sit sit behind. You know, New Zealand haven't won every World Cup. But when they don't win it, you never see them drop below about third in the rankings. No. I mean, they go up, back up again. You know, the fall from grace in two thousand three was was huge, and I, I just I think there's been such poor decisions made in and around the game. Yeah, uh, we still got to a Rugby World Cup final in twenty nineteen, yeah. and the expectation was we were going to win. Yeah, uh, it was. But the, the, but then when you don't win it, you need to understand the reasons why you didn't win it. And, you think uh, this
1: group of players that borthwick scored- has <laughs> got. I mean, these results that leading into a World Cup are being, in any other sport, he'd be in far more trouble, I suspect. But then again, I guess the challenges are that you've got a World Cup coming up, so you're not going to take him out again, take someone out again. But is it simply not just the case of the players aren't good
0: enough? Ideally, you want to win a World Cup, right? But then in the four years in between, you want to, you want to, you want to, there's still things you want to win in between. Yeah. Now, now, I I watched
1: them in the (sighs) internationals against South Africa, and I didn't see the malaise. No. in the side that that has manifested itself six months later
0: in the last three years we've only won two out of five five six nations games two out of five so we've we've lost more games than we've won in the last three years in the six nations that's not the england i know and therefore so these are not problems that that steve borthwick has, has just stumbled across no i think there's been an a, there's since there's yokohama it. the review needed to be a proper root and branch thorough review and the recommendations or, or the or the thought or the ideas and the brains around what should be done after that should have been implemented. There are players that probably, you know, thanks very much, you've probably played your last game for England, mate, um, and you move on. And that happens anyway in a World Cup. And, and the secret of being a player is knowing when that happens, before it happens, really. And being able to time your exit and leave by the door that you want to leave by. And I think that we have just made a lot of mistakes. And, and, and I think that the, you know, that, Rebuilding into the World Cup is uh, has been has been very very difficult. I don't think the the squad, you know, Saracen's got relegated as well. Don't forget, which is which I think people don't understand the implications because about a third of the group that make up the England team are from that club. So there was a natural sort of um, you know they they were playing rugby in the championship. You
1: know, is there you... enough leaders in this group? Do you think?
0: Yeah, there is. There is there, well, there, there, it's a, there is enough players in that group who've got vast amounts of experience. Some of them are going to their fourth World Cup, but from the outside, it appears that that, that leadership group is a bit fragmented. But I Dawson think? doesn't think there is, does he? Well, I don't think we, uh, we're we not screaming out with world-class players, all right? No, you know, this is not me being critical. If you asked anyone who, who follows the game of rugby at international level to pick a World 15, I'm not sure there'd be too many English players in that team. What does success look like for this England team in this World Cup? I've pared back my expectations, actually, okay. You know, we 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 as the public are, are with the England team. We're not against them, but you can't you can't hide the truth. You know, you won four out of thirteen. We've lost three out of four warm up games. We've arrived at the World Cup without our captain and our not the only number eight in the squad.
1: Would um, it make a lot of difference to you if you <laughs> saw or heard players owning their experiences? Because it seems to be a thing that resonates with you.
0: I think the fans deserve it because you know fans pay a lot of money to follow their yeah, team, yeah. and I think fans deserve to. Do you know footballers really? come on in in many ways because I, I remember there was times when i used to watch match of the day or watch a, an interview with the football i used to think god what are you saying it doesn't make any sense at all and actually now what we've what we've done with football players is, is they've they've actually not all of them but quite a few of them like they're, they're really happy and talk to camera and they talk yeah. in a, a vet they've really really changed yeah they've developed they've yeah. developed beyond all belief rugby players seem to have gone backwards you know, everyone talks about drive to survive and all that stuff. You know, and it's like the model for you know growing a sport. Formula One are used to having people around them all the time, but the only way you can really fall in love with a sport if you don't if you if you've not been brought up with it is to understand the human beings that exist yeah. behind the game. If they don't talk to you, then you can't. You can't, right? Yeah. So therefore, um, I just think there needs to be a much more emotional connection between the fans in rugby and uh, and the players, and I think that they want to do it, but for whatever reason they're. They're being held back. Do you have a theory on that? Well, I don't know. Whoever's in charge of that is is not doing. Is not got the right strategy because unless people, because then it leaves a void where we're not quite sure what's going on. So we just so we we draw our own conclusions, or we just go, I'm a bit not really bothered about that." You know, you got to take people on a journey emotionally with you. You know, England fans have been on a journey with us for six years. They they were there for all our highs. They were there for the lows. They stuck with us, and we got to the top of the world together because. You don't do it on your own, you do it together. Uh-huh. And the greatest feeling in the world, I've never been involved in, a, in an individual sport where you know you could get to the top of the world and it'd be quite a good feeling, give yourself a pat on the back. But to do it with a group of people where you where you stumble along the way and you pick each other up and then you get to the top, that is a far greater feeling, to be able to hold hands and say, we did it together. And I think that's what this, this England group, my expectations are that they'll qualify for the quarterfinals and they could potentially beat um, any of the teams that they'll, they'll play either wales or australia in the yeah. quarterfinals both of which um eddie jones's comments and warren gatlin's comments you know might might be good might be bad you never know uh, England will have their own motivation so they could actually find themselves in a semi-final
1: and once you get out of the group they've got a the better side of the draw I mean.
0: yeah absolutely i mean it's you know everyone's been moaning it and the draw is what the draw is yeah. i mean you know two of the teams that are in you know that side of the draw weren't as good as they are now so they've got better yeah. and suddenly the draw looks like lopsided because you know the four best teams in the world are, you know, Ireland, France, South Africa, New Zealand. Now, two of them are going to be gone by the quarterfinal stage. So what that creates is opportunity for someone of else. Course. So it will be um, it will be a, a very different World Cup because rugby, a bit like football, is changing all the time. There won't be any red cards because the referees will go, that's a yellow, and the and the bunker referee will decide if it, the, the, the TMO or the VAR will decide if it's a red. There will be a lot of things that are different about it. Um, New Zealand will play some amazing rugby. They'll probably play... You know the best rugby in the tournament, but they may not win it because I'm not sure they've got the, the forwards. That are... Who do you think will win it? Well, I want England to win it, obviously, but I've I've pared back my expectations. I think they'd be coming from uh, you know Frankie Notorious from you know from from right, from right, right back right, in the field. Right back in the field. I think Ireland have got everything that is required to win that. Uh, they're the number one side in the world. They've won in New Zealand. They, they've got the belief. They do need to keep Johnny Sexton and. Um, Gibson Park that's got off fit uh, over all the games so it be interesting to see how he how he does that. Would we have won without Johnny Wilkinson? Well, we never know, but we got to a final with him fit and you know that was a huge huge reward for us If I had to, I mean I go back to, to to the data, six of nine World Cups have been won by South Africa and New Zealand so um, you know you, you have to respect both of those countries, but home advantage is your point uh, is is strong and the French have only lost one game in Paris in four years. So who are you going to pick? Well, fr- I think France or South Africa will, will win the World Cup. Um, and I, I can't choose between the two. I said South Africa last time. Well, you um, must want the South Africans to we, win because you want to retain, retain
1: the no, title no, of the no, only...
0: No, that's, where you, that's where we differ, because I would like nothing better to, for, for than England to have won two World Cups since, uh, since 2003, because I want other players to experience the feelings that I've felt. I was in, don't forget, my last game of rugby for England, international rugby, was in 2007 and I was in the World Cup final dressing room and we just lost the final. And, you know, the emotions were, as you'd expect, you know, traumatic. I, I've, you know, I'm I'm traumatised, but I wasn't as traumatised because I already won a World Cup final. Yeah. So I want players to have that feeling. I'm not one of these guys that thinks, oh, Yeah, English it, players. If, if England win not a World French. Cup, you know, um, there's me off the after-dinner circuit. I mean, talking about what you did 20 years ago is, 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 not, is not how you should live your life. No. No, it really isn't. No. It's, it's about moving forward, okay? So it's not about wanting to retain your status, you know, like Johnny Wilkinson or most of the team is a national treasure. That that that's there. You know, it's about it's about building on that. And I, I want players to experience that. I would prefer either France or Ireland to be on there rather than New Zealand, South Africa, because they've won it six Fair times. Point. They've had enough. We, Fair you, know, point.
1: you know, we don't we don't need them winning anymore. So if it's not if it's not gonna be it can't England, can't be England, then, it can't you, be England yeah. then any northern hemisphere side will do it. Yeah. And
0: those two are the two best sides in the world. Uh, by rankings, and they've played the best rugby over the last 12 months. So it's nice to see if they can take that onto the biggest stage of all where there will be pressure. Pressure, if you're French, you see yourself on billboards all over the country. You know that, that? I mean, DuPont, they've got the best player in the world. It's amazing, but they've got to deal with that. And I hope they can. And if it's, you know, Ireland, I mean, the Irish have always had an amazing team, but they've never delivered at a World Cup. They never got past the quarterfinal. And with wouldn't it be ironic if Andy Farrell... Uh, Mike Catt uh, who were both coaching (laughs) delivered the outcome uh, because uh, England didn't appoint them or didn't stick with them
1: Lawrence Delali, I've really enjoyed today thank you very much for being so upfront with me thank you very much Upfront with me Simon Jordan is brought to you by William Hill future episodes can be found on YouTube, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts 18 plus please gamble responsibly